So I have a huge question coming up. <laughs> so basically, and I don't think I quite understood this until I really started practicing, where um, it can be quite challenging to assess bilingual children in certain circumstances when you don't speak the language that that child may be exposed to, and that might be their like their first language, their dominant language. So a big question a lot of SLPs have, and including me, like it, it can be so challenging when a child comes in and say they're a toddler. And it's one thing when a monolingual toddler comes in, that's a lot easier if they're a monolingual English speaker. I'm an English speaker, so much easier to assess them. But when a bilingual toddler comes in and say one of their languages, Spanish and then English, but then at the same time, the parents, there's a language barrier with the parents. So parent report isn't overly helpful because I'm also having language barrier with the parents because their dominant language is Spanish and I only speak English, unfortunately. So then it comes to the question of, is this child actually delayed in language and do they have a disorder or a delay or, or any other issue going on? Or, or do they have, they just not had enough exposure to English? And I can't really tell because I can only look at their English, not their Spanish. So then it's like, how, do you have any pieces of advice <laughs> or, or any like thoughts or any just really anything that would be helpful to SLPs in these circumstances? Because I'm finding, especially living in Vancouver, there are so many bilingual children. And when you're a monolingual SLP whose only language is English, it's <laughs> A little bit challenging. Um, yeah, that's a big question. And I'll just, it's a loaded big question. Absolutely. Lots, of, like as you were speaking, I was like, oh, where do I even start? Um, <laughs> I'll start with where you ended. First, I want to assure you that even if you're not a monolingual, there's nothing wrong with being a monolingual SLP, period. <laughs> it's great. You have lots of resources and I'll highlight some of them. Hopefully um, uh, that will be helpful to you and others in your position. But be mindful that even if you are a bilingual SLP, you're bilingual only in two languages, <laughs> right? Bilingual, two languages. Even if you're multilingual, you're probably multilingual in three, maybe four, maybe five. I don't think a lot of people function really well in more than five languages. Anyway, and that's so rare, right? So, but even if you're a quintilingual five, you know, in five languages, um, you still will not be addressing the needs of most of your clients, right? Because as you said, you're in Vancouver, we know that there's at least 120 different languages clinicians reporting, encountering in their daily practice you can't possibly know all of those 120 languages. So the point is that whether you're bilingual or monolingual SLP, it doesn't really make very much difference. Unless of course, if you're a bilingual Spanish English SLP in the US, you have a huge advantage because you'll be addressing the needs of a very large proportion of the population. Similarly, if you're French English bilingual in Ontario and Quebec, uh, you have similar advantages. Probably um, Chinese English bilingual now in Vancouver area, you're addressing again, likely the needs of a lot of kids. So that of course always helps. But just wanted to clarify also that being monolingual or bilingual doesn't necessarily you know, make, make that much of a difference. So having said that, um, absolutely, this is a, 
very common question and, and um, professionals of not just SLPs, but anybody working with kids and bilingual individuals struggles with. Um, and so there's many reasons as to why it's really difficult to work with bilingual um, individuals, period. And I just highlight the first one, which is the main one, is that it's a very heterogeneous population. So bilingual individuals, as I already said, you can be dealing with different languages. So not just one or two languages, you're having 20, 50, 120 um, different languages present in your clinical practice. How could you possibly learn about all of those languages or be able to address the needs and, and clients in all of those languages? But also the clients themselves are likely to be very different, not only because they speak different languages, but also there's the degree of proficiency in each language, the balance, how good they're in which language, which was their first language, which was their second language, and what context they use their languages. All of that adds additional um, degree of complexity and differences across individuals. So basically we can have one model of assessment that fits all right and plus we're each individual's period monolingual bilingual right where we already know about individual differences and and how we always need to think about those but still we're always trying to look for some commonalities so that we can find the best approaches that work for the most individuals right so having said that um i also before i forget actually i wanted to say something to encourage your listeners to always keep assuming those who are clinicians, SLPs, um, to always stay updated on ASHA and the SAC's <laughs> information. Um, so those professional organizations um, do actually aim to, so American Speech and Hearing Association in the US and the Speech Language and Audiology Canada Association in Canada equivalent, um, they stay up to date on the newest research and they often issue position statements or um, summary of, of research that could be helpful to practitioners. I would also encourage you to check their websites, read their journals, of which I'm sure you do, and um, go to their conferences and not least because I'll be presenting to one of, <laughs> one of them this spring. I'll be presenting at the SAC conference, which is in Vancouver, uh, hopefully in person, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But the point is that those are some good resources to, to utilize. Um, for, and I know that they do talk about bilingual populations because in their recent um, SAC position statement, they talked about um, clinical practice with bilingual children. It was really great to see our research being featured there and seeing how it's made a difference in real in real life settings. So what can I, what can a monolingual or even bilingual SLP do when they're meeting with a client whose language, one of their languages they don't know, right? It's, we're assuming English is the common language and there's this other language. Let's break it into bilingual clinicians and monolingual clinicians. So let's say your client is a um, English, Spanish bilingual and you are a Spanish, English bilingual SLP. So that's ideal. That's <laughs> that would be wonderful, right? Um, um, the the clinician speaks both languages of the child. Then then you can do assessment. You can interact simply interact with the child in both languages. You can have meaningful, informative interviews with the parents because you speak their stronger language, whatever that is. Um, so all that is ideal. And as we know, and I'm not going to go into much details because I know a lot of clinicians are very aware of that. The golden rule for bilingual assessment and intervention is do it in both languages. <laughs> so if you're a bilingual clinician who speaks the two languages, do as much as you can in both languages. That would give you the best 
um, assessment the best idea of the child's abilities. And where this come from is because if it's a true language disorder, it will be present in both languages. If it's a simply lack of proficiency in one of the languages, then the expectation is that the child will be stronger. So again, if it's child with language, complicated language issues, his language may not be very strong, but it will be still stronger, ideally, in, in, in a stronger language, uh, better, more proficient in one language than the one that they're less proficient in. Let's say the clinician is monolingual English speaker and have a bilingual client who said, let's say their strongest language is Chinese and they have very little English and the parents don't speak a lot of English. Um, I would highlight some of the work done by some of my colleagues, in particular in Canada, Joanne Paradis, who is a friend of mine, as well as a good colleague at the University of Alberta, has done specifically, she went about a few years back, um, about five years back, to address exactly the needs of monolingual English-speaking clinicians. And so she didn't want people to feel, and I similarly agree with that, I don't want monolingual or, again, for the same reasons I mentioned, any bilingual clinicians as well, to feel restrained by the fact that you're monolingual, that you can't work with bilingual clients, because that's not true. So one thing I tell my students first in my classes is, you still have a lot of resources and a lot of knowledge and a lot of um, tools in your toolbox, let's put it, that you can still utilize even when you're working with um, bilingual clients. So don't forget that. <laughs> um, it's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, so Joanne Paradis set out to find out ways to, whether it's possible or feasible, to assess bilingual children only in English, because if you're an English monolingual. And so she came up with this battery of English measures, uh, which comprised of basically a test of non-word repetition, um, tense morphology test, um, and also story grammar. So basically narrative abilities of the children. And, um, and she also includes a parent questionnaire on the first language development of the child. So assuming that English is not the first language. So the questionnaire is particularly about the other language. The questionnaire is in English and assumes that the parents can answer it. So it does rely on some fairly uh, sophisticated language use on the parents. Hopefully in cases where that's not possible, this SOP can rely on translators <laughs> or colleagues to at least facilitate that. So you're not working directly with the client. So I wouldn't be too worried there about losing um, real language representation, but working with on these questionnaires with translators, I think will be a good idea. And so her research has shown that when you put those together, um, they provide good sensitivity and specificity for identifying or differentiating language impairment from second language, just lack of proficiency in the second language. So this is one approach. Uh, so even though you don't speak the other language, using those tests and that method in English could help with differentiating between language disorder versus um, language proficiency. Um, in the US, I'm familiar by work by Elizabeth Pena, um, who is down at University of Texas at Austin, um, who has developed with her colleagues uh, what's called the bilingual language assessment, the BESA, uh, which is the bilingual English-Spanish, um, I think, assessment. So it is specifically for Spanish-English bilinguals. It's done in the US. Um, and so she's done a series of studies where, and I most just in preparation for this, I actually looked up again the research and noticed this recently as 2020. Um, she's published an article where basically they're using the BESA, so this bilingual assessment tool, which can be administered in Spanish as well as in English, and it has a morphosyntactic subtest and semantic subtest. 
And then when they combine it with the TNL, so the test of narrative language, which is a standardized <laughs> test in English you're familiar with, um, they're finding that combining those two or in a different study um, from a different group of people still using the BESA and MLU in words from language sampling, that combining those two approaches tends to lead to very high percentage of confidence, above 90%, or the greatest accuracy in identifying language impairment in children who are learning English as a second language. I'll put the resources too. So when, it, when people are listening to this, um, the resources will be in the link. Sure. Yeah, I think that would help because I'm talking about specific studies. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there are some, I'm trying to highlight some specific approaches that can be utilized by monolingual SOPs or SOPs who are not speaking the language of the client and still be able to work at least in English alone um, in that context. Thank you for going over that. It's such a common challenge for SLPs. Um, and it's also such a great thing that there's so many kids learning multiple languages, but that at the same time, um, it can just be challenging to kind of differentiate that. That's really helpful. I'm going to put those resources in the description of my bio. So anyone listening right now, you can click and you can look more into that. So thank you for going over those. Um, on, an, on a similar note of assessment and standardized tests, are there certain considerations that we should be thinking about when we're doing standardized tests on bilingual children? Because oftentimes we need to have the standardized tests for a report or just helpful when we're writing goals. Of course, SLPs listening, there's pros and cons, you know, <laughs> like with the standardized testing. But then when it really comes to those bilingual kids, are there certain things we should be thinking about and taking into consideration when we're doing testing on them? Absolutely. So I, I'm just going to assume, and I'm pretty confident, Shannon, that just like you and our program, everybody in other programs across North America and the world are trained in how properly to administer standardized tests and what the pitfalls and as well as the advantage, right? So I'm not going to go through the details of that, reliability, validity, and all that. I'm just going to highlight here that standardized tests, as you know, with small exceptions, generally are developed and designed for specific populations that usually, usually tend to be monolinguals, right? So as a result, by nature, they're not valid and reliable. They can be used on populations that they haven't been designed for. So in this case, bilingual populations. So that's one of their biggest problems. Having said that, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should completely ignore them or not use them for some purposes, as long as we're aware of the limitations or how far we can interpret the results that we gather from standardized tests that have been used on bilingual populations. We need to remember that bilinguals are not two monolinguals in one. <laughs> um, so again, by if, even if you use standardized tests that are developed on, from, on monolingual populations, this is one of the reasons why we can't just compare the bilingual child's proficiency or performance in both languages on those standardized tests, because the assumption now is that bilingual individuals are different. They're not just two simple combinations of the two languages. The language production and comprehension, it varies. Um, and so here, Again, uh, here are some um, things that you can still use standardized tests that are developed, let's say, for English monolingual populations with some caveats in mind. Um, so one thing is, if you test a bilingual child on a standardized test and she scores within the normal range or above, even above the normal range or whatever, that's valid. Because if she has a language delay or disorder and she's capable of performing so well on that particular standardized test, we cannot ignore that. That means she is doing 
equivalent to monolingual or typically developing children or whatever it means, right? The, so when the child is highly scoring on a test, and I'm not saying they will be <laughs> on all tests, or, but in some of them, that gives you some information, gives you at least clear indication that the child has a strength in that particular area. So whether it's working memory or uh, vocabulary or sentence comprehension, whatever it is. Um, of course, if the child scores really low or below the norm, then then you can't. That's all you know. The standardized test only tells you that they're scoring really low, but don't then immediately make assumptions that the child's failing because it could be a result of lack of proficiency in the language. Right? It could be a language delay, but but it could be a lack of proficiency. So in low scoring circumstances, we can't use the scores. However, we know, and just as I was saying earlier with um, Elizabeth Pena's work and others, we know now. That that some combination of standardized measures with other approaches could be useful resources of information again when assessing bilingual children. And what are some of those other approaches? Local norms. So you can use a standardized test, but don't use the published norms, but use either local norms that you have developed yourself or maybe through having administrated it in your clinic, um, you already have a sense of what children in that population tend to see so them, compare them to that local norms. Um, language sample analysis, I can highlight that um, strongly enough. So things such as um, just something you're, you're familiar with, um, getting a language sample, whether it's a narrative, whether it's a conversation, it's helpful because it gives you a realistic perspective of the child's language abilities. Also, um, Databases such as the SALT and Childs um, both have rich um, resources now of data with bilingual children of various language backgrounds, as well as various um, language impairments. So it's, again, a good database you can compare your particular sample next to and, again, give you a good, good indication of the child's abilities. Um, another is dynamic assessment, which I know not all programs, not as all SLPs have been trained in that particular, particular approach, but it's something to be mindful of. And those of you who might be interested in that, there's probably workshops and professional development opportunities that you can get involved. But dynamic, dynamic assessment has been shown to be also sensitive and adapt to addressing the needs of bilingual children. And finally, and not least, um, you can also aim to use standardized tests that are not specifically language-based. Um, so things, that, tests that tend to assess information processing skills. So whether it's speed, speed of processing, working memory, or selective attention, sustained attention, those are not strictly language-based skills, but you can still use an English-developed, normed, um, standardized test. And again, it could give you a lot, a lot of useful information, especially in clinical populations, right? So those are some of the um, additional um, ideas that I would provide for using standardized tests in English. Okay, all right. I'm going to link um, SALT and CHILD in the description. I'm, I'm assuming any recent grads are really familiar with that. <laughs> but yeah. I'll link that in too for people to refresh their memories on those. For sure. And I just wanted to bring both of them. I know some, some people may be only aware with one or the other, but I think both are great resources and people should rely on both for those purposes. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll link that in. I love having all the resources available for people when they're listening. Cause I know when I'm listening to something, I'm like, okay, I want to check it out like right now, you know, so you can just click it and go look at that. Okay. So our final question is on speech sounds, but it, it it's more than speech sounds really, actually it's lots of pieces of language as well. One common question that comes up, and I even have this too, because 
So um, I guess when do SLPs draw the line between working on something, whether it's a speech sound or whether it's a like um, a challenge or not even challenge, whether it's like tense or like just pieces of language or certain speech sounds. So I'm just going to give an example to make this make more sense. So for example, if, if a client is speaking like a Chinese language and they may, um, their TH sound may turn into an S sound. So instead of they, when they say thank you, it's thank you. And say that the child's fine with it, or maybe, maybe they're not, but the parent, they want this fixed. It's not a true speech sound disorder. Is that something SLP should be working on? And then the same goes for like, tense, I think comes up a lot. That's why it's so it's on my mind a lot because I have so many clients where they are speaking a language where there's just less tense used overall. And then I notice that in English, their tense is omitted basically. And I'm like, okay, so we need to work on tense, but at the same time, what's your opinion on that with SLPs? Because SLPs, we're not English teachers. And I think sometimes that's a confusion with clients and their families, we're more for like a true disorders and speech sound disorders and language delays and disorders. I was wondering what you think about that and when you think that the line should be drawn and yeah. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you and I'm very mindful of the fact that SOPs are very busy um, with very limited time and a lot of children. So assuming we're talking, let's say a child who does not have any language or speech delay or disorder and it's purely accent, basically a second language issue with the pronunciation, then the SOPs time would be so much better utilized in addressing the needs of a child who's truly struggling with language and having more serious issues and, and would truly benefit from the services of an SLP, something that a child who's simply learning English as a second language can learn those things from other sources. It doesn't have to be the expert professional expertise of, of SLPs. Um, <clears throat> And as you said, um, language transfer occurs on all levels of language. Um, so not just in sounds, not just in grammar, but also could be on the lexical level and could be also on the pragmatic. I always want to add the pragmatic level because often is ignored, but think about somebody you know from a different culture, let's say my neighbor who is from Switzerland and she always comes across as much more direct. <laughs> Even though she's been living in Canada for over 20 or 30 years, and it's what she's not a rude person It's just that that's how she's used to communicating in Switzerland, which is a much more direct culture um, and way of communicating and she's simply transferring her abilities in English and, and has maintained, which is totally fine. So the point is that you can transfer on various levels. Um, so when it's on the sound level, um, first of all, and let's say you're not sure. So obviously if it's a second language accent issue, it's really up to the SOP at that point to say, do you want to work on accent reduction or not? Or is the family paying you to do work on accent, right? You, uh, those are things that you can decide locally and with the family and what, what your time you want to devote on and who, who can pay for that. But assuming that you're uncertain, this is what I think is the more complicated question, right? You have a child who's having issues with speech and it's not quite clear whether it's because of transfer or foreign accent, or is it actual some delay or speech disorder? And in that case, what I would suggest first is identify whether the sound or sounds that are problematic is, are actually a result of transfer or 
language um, speech disorder. And how you do that is something I mentioned in my courses again is um, refer to some resource. And the internet is also a huge resource for that kind of information. Even now, if you don't speak the language, whichever home language the child's coming from, you can find a lot of information online about the phonology of the language, the morphosyntax of the language that can as a trained and very proficient in linguistics experts, SOPs can actually quickly establish whether this is coming from the first language, therefore it's transfer or not. Um, one source I would mention is the International Speech Guide, specifically for speech um, by Sharon, edited by Sharon McLeod. Um, and currently, actually, we're working on a new, more expanded edition, um, which will be called the Oxford Handbook of Speech Development in Languages of the World. And so I think that's a great resource because it covers, well, currently the International Speech Guides covers um, about a dozen English dialects alone, uh, plus at least two or three dozen languages around the world. So the idea is to give you a sense, and it's written in English. So by reading, you can learn about Filipino, you can learn about Chinese, Putinhua, or Korean, or French, or Spanish. And so again, even if you don't speak the language itself, you can learn a lot about its phonology in particular. And usually that guide gives some references to what currently there's assessment or even intervention strategies in each country that are being utilized. So that's a good way to, <laughs> to start. Um, and so if you establish that the sounds are an issue uh, of transfer or basically foreign accent, and especially if the children are young, like, in, in the first 12 years of life or so with sufficient exposure. So again, this high quality quantity of language exposure always comes back. Um, with sufficient exposure to a high quality of English, the child will self-correct. Eventually they will lose the accent basically. They will start speaking <laughs> English more like native, native like, even though the parents in the home may have heavy accents. Once the child, or once the child goes to school, assuming it's an English speaking school, their friends are mainly English speakers, then that would basically self-correct. It doesn't, just like, right, any natural second language learners would. Um, or if it remains, some sounds that would be foreign accent, and some of us would just can't get rid of it, but that's okay. Um, but if the combination is combined with a possible speech sound disorder, then I would suggest that the SOP should work as you would usually work with a speech sound disorder with a child, whether it's monolingual or bilingual. Don't exclude the sounds that you suspect are transfer errors. So the th, s, just work globally. Treat the child as if the, you know, it is a monolingual child with speech sound disorder and, and just proceed with that. And in the process, whatever transfer errors, again, they might develop or kind of fall off quicker than the other ones, but uh, it won't hurt in any way to do that. And I actually wanted to, assuming we're drawing to a close, I wanted to end on a positive note a little bit. I know we didn't plan, plan to talk about intervention and that's totally fine, but there's some good news in terms of transfer and intervention that I wanted to share with people is that transfer occurs in intervention strategies. So what I mean by that is when you work in one language, ideally the stronger language of the child, but even in some cases, if it's not the stronger language, be confident that whatever skills the child is developing and showing progress in that language is also transferring to the other language. So actually when you're working in one language, you're making a difference in all of the other languages of the child, which I think that's great. <laughs> that's such a nice takeaway. Um, 
to think about. And I think that would be so nice for parents to really understand too, when we're doing therapy, that for me, if I'm doing therapy in English, um, that it's, that the, their other language is also going to be having benefits from the intervention. So that's really nice. And I love ending on the, <laughs> on the positive. If people are wanting more to hear more about the benefits of bilingualism too, then listen to our other podcast. Cause we go over a lot of benefits of bilingualism as well. Thank you for going over all of these questions. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I love learning from you and getting to know more about the research behind all these things that we're doing every day with these clients. For anyone who's wanting to follow you or check out your websites or to just get to know you better, because, you know, podcasts, it's like you were curious, like, who is this person we've been listening to? We want to get to know her better. So where can people find you and follow you, see your work and all of that? You can start with my school departmental website, uh, which is at the School of Audiology and Speech Sciences at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, Canada. I also have a personal website where I've just recently developed and I have a blog there where I blog or write about on two topics, but one of which is bilingualism. And the goal there is to write for mainly parents or non-professional, non-clinicians. So I aim to write in a language that is approachable and engage ways, but still, I think SLPs might find some of the information there helpful or, or at least Again, presented in a way that parents can more easily digest it. So that's marinovatod.com, uh, one word, no hyphen in my last name. And um, I'm also on Instagram. Um, so <laughs> that's on a more personal level, but I try to at least keep people updated on my blogs or publications and presentations and things like that. Okay. So I can add those in the description too. So you can click on her website and everything and they can find out more about you there. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so nice to be able to chat more about these topics we were both saying before we came on that we're so excited (laughs) to chat about it and it's so nice to be able to connect with you again so yeah thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me Shannon it's always a pleasure as I said before anytime (laughs) all right thanks okay so I will see everyone next Monday 